Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. The Crime Couch is proudly sponsored by Bank Vic. Keith Banks is one of Queensland's most decorated police officers. He's been awarded the Australian Bravery Medal and two Valor Awards. He joined at 17 years of age before working undercover in the 1980s. Keith found himself sidelined from the drug squad. He worked in the breakers and returned to the drug squad before transferring to Turinga CIB as a detective senior constable. But Keith missed the pump of working undercover. So he joined the Queensland Police Emergency Squad, which then became the Tactical Response Group. Keith spent 20 years as an operational police member before resigning as a detective sergeant in 1995. He's since turned his hand to writing and published two excellent books, Drugs, Guns and Lies, and Gun to the Head, published by Alan and Unwin. Welcome back to The Crime Couch, Keith. Uh, take two. And it's a pleasure to be back again. Tell me, why did you start to move away from working undercover? And and why? When and why? Oh, look, I, I did almost two years of undercover. Um, around that time, I simply had enough. You know, and and it didn't count towards any promotion. It didn't give you any career advantage. And uh, and I knew that I'd probably lived in that world long enough. I I regarded myself then as a lifer. I was going to be a cop forever. I was going to retire at 60, 65, whenever. Um, so I, I really looked ahead and I wanted to be back in the fold, I guess. You know, pursue promotion, become a designated detective. And, and at that stage, that's what that was my, um, my career goal. Again, I didn't understand there was an emergency squad or tactical response area. So for Victorian listeners, the SOG. Um, once I discovered that existed, in exactly the same way that I volunteered for undercover, I wanted to be a part of that as well because that was the pointy end. That was dealing with, um, dealing with crooks at their worst or the worst crooks and on their level. What about personally, I suppose, Keith? What, what sort of a toll does it take on, on you working undercover for such a period of time? Yeah, I, I came through it relatively okay. You know, I had a massive lifestyle change. Um, it taught me that the world was no longer black and white. It was simply shades of grey. And, and it really helped me understand, I suppose, why people get into crime. Um, not all of them, but why some of them get into crime, I guess. You know, wrong choice in life, bad circumstances. So I wasn't judging them, um, crook and, and, and cop, anymore. So that was okay. But there were friends of mine. One became a heroin addict developed a major addiction and uh, left undercover, left the police force and used all his payout money and, and uh, put it up his arm and became an armed robber. And he was a, an absolute casualty of his, of his job. Um, another, uh, another went to jail. Uh, another couple of guys fell into mental health issues, substance abuse. Um, you know, so there, there were a lot of casualties in that world. As I say, I was fairly fortunate. And I think it was because... I always knew that I was doing it for the greater good. Um, so maybe some of that misplaced idealism actually was a, was a good thing in hindsight. 
You could see, though, specifically amongst your colleagues that you worked with in Undercover, just how those lines would blur and how easily it would be to fall off the side. Oh, absolutely right. There was no, there was zero supervision, zero. Um, so 22, 23, 24-year-old boys with access to you know, all the, um, the buy money, um, which all had to be accounted for, but, but certainly access to the buy money, access to as much weed as you wanted, access to firearms you know, that, uh, that weren't general issue because they couldn't be. And just the, the freedom of doing whatever the hell you wanted whenever you wanted. You know, it was a uh, got to the stage where I'd, I'd get out of bed in time for the eleven a.m. news <laughs> because I wouldn't go to bed until uh, you know very very early in the morning, and that became my lifestyle um, mm. as it did for a lot of us. And and you know we um, we were a hard drinking, hard playing culture as well. And when you're undercover, you delight in not acting like or looking like or being like a cop. You delight in it. The problem is the transition back to the real world can be pretty tough. Tell me, just how addictive is that work and is that lifestyle? Oh, very, very. Because unless you, unless you set, I think, a time frame and, and you understand that it's a temporary thing and you need to go back to being a real cop at some point, it would be very tempting to stay in that world as long as you can. Because, um, as I say, no rules, no oh. supervision. How did you hold the line between who you were and who you were pretending to be? Did you have your own unspoken rules yeah I um I always had a a fairly strong internal moral compass so you know I was never going to fall to the other side of the line where you know I'd be taking money selling drugs and so on I saw people do it um certainly but I um I just regarded it it's it's the wrong phrase to use but for me it was a game and uh whilst it was a game with some pretty high stakes you know you don't want to end up with your throat cut somewhere it was still a game and it was me matching my wits against them. And, uh, and I have to admit, I took some sociopathic delight in, uh, in pretending to be friends and then watching the, um, the, the fingers almost get slammed in the bar doors at the end of it. You know, so I really enjoyed that component. Um, but the challenging part was along the way, I think I said in the first episode, where I met some people I actually quite liked. And that becomes challenging. As you continue working undercover, you see more of that you tend to associate more with the criminals than you do with the police oh yeah every day um although the the other undercovers when we could socialize together when we were you know two or three of us were in brisbane at the same time because we we were sent all over the state and sometimes interstate i would um i wouldn't socialize with a lot of cops at all when i was undercover for a couple of reasons people didn't need to know who you were and secondly I didn't really know who to trust, and as, as terrible as that sounds, you know, the undercovers could only trust each other. You know, there were even people in the drug squad who were managing us, for want of a better word, or I use that term flippantly, that we didn't trust a lot because we knew that they were probably up to the wrong thing as well. So, you know, it just it became a, it became a world where you, yeah, you become very cynical, you become very careful, you become hyperactive, um, and it was one of those strange things, you know, when you're in the middle of a an undercover operation, you are scared without doubt. Um, but it's such an addictive rush that you can't wait to go back and do it again. How difficult was it, Keith, working again as a detective with the rules, with the procedures, even with the suit? I mean, it's not the blue uniform, but it's the suit. How difficult was it to sort of put yourself in that space again after working undercover and having no rules? 
Yeah, transition was tough um, initially. And uh, initially, when I finished undercover, I went back to uniform for six months, I think. That was tough, buying, you know, heroin literally one afternoon and then the very next day sitting in a car in a blue suit with a gun belt and, a, you know, red and blue lights on the top. Um, by the time I'd gotten back to the CIB, then I, I was okay. I, I, you know, I sort of transitioned back again, although I hadn't lost a lot of the lifestyle changes. You know, I was drinking way more than the average person. I think that's a cop thing anyway, or well, it was in those days. Um, Still is. Yeah, <laughs> I just hide it a little better. Um, but, you know, so I, I transitioned okay. And in fact, I, I quite liked rules as well. You know, I liked coming back into something that had structure. Tell me, Keith, what was the attraction of the Special Air Service? The SAS guys uh, started training us in 1982 and uh, as part of the National Counterterrorism Plan. So Special Air Service still has a, a counterterrorist component. So they, um, they flew over, they would train us in the, the old emergency squad, which was a part-time role, um, two weeks a year at Land Warfare Centre in Canungra. And, uh, and they were consummate professionals. And they, they taught us breaching, breaching meaning how to break into to places, um, breaching, close quarter battle, how to move from room to room, clear rooms, etc. And I was incredibly impressed with their professionalism and that's why I wanted to move completely into tactical, into the tactical world as an operator, and spend as long as I could there. You initially, as you mentioned, joined the Queensland Police Emergency Squad. What specifically were they tasked with, and what training was involved with that? They, the Emergency Squad, I think it started in the mid-60s, and, and they were really formed to deal with domestic sieges um, or situations where criminals had high-powered weapons the average person or the average police officer didn't. Um, based, I think, from memory on the New South Wales model, um, comprised mainly of detectives in a part-time capacity. Um, when I joined them, that was right at the cusp of uh, preparing or being part of the, as I said before, the National Anti-Terrorist Plan, which meant that we were given better equipment by the feds, we were given the training by the SAS, we were starting to really change and evolve very, very quickly. We worked with uh, Nine Squadron RAAF uh, helicopter, Iroquois helicopter squadron. Um, they'd seen service in Vietnam, and uh, we were learning how to abseil out of helicopters on the roofs. We're just, and again, it was back to the boys' own adventure stuff. You know, if you're um, if you're paid to go to a range and fire lots of submachine guns and shotguns and assault rifles and tear gas and jump off buildings now to choppers then that's probably not a bad way to live your life. And, uh, and that's, that's, what, that's what really attracted me to it. And, and for me, again, it was being part of what we call the sharp end, and that was dealing with crooks. We, we were the last resort. Yeah? So um, vicious armed robbers and so on, we were the, you know, if, we couldn't, uh, if we couldn't stop them, there was nobody else left after us. And that was appealing. You also worked, Keith, with um, Victoria Police's SOG, and what did you qualify as? Because you worked quite extensively with them. Yeah, I did a number of courses, uh, national courses, and, and the Soggies were always on the courses, as were um, New South Wales guys, South Australian, West Australian, and so on. I did a, um, I completed a, uh, a national counter-terrorist instructors course with the Special Air Service in Campbell Barracks in Perth in 1987. As a result of that, I became very, very good friends with a number of SOG operators and, and just other interstate operators and still am to this day. Great network, great bunch of like-minded people, great bunch of, of professional, um, and I know the word is probably not appreciated these days, but certainly a warrior culture, you know, and, um, 
and we we all shared the same vision, and that was to be the best we could possibly be in that um, in that world of policing. Bankvic was founded by police in 1974 to help members get a better deal on banking. Things are better today, but Bankvic's purpose is the same. To serve the police better than the other banks with great rates and personal service. With a branch inside Victoria Police Centre and mobile lenders visiting stations or available by appointment, they're available where and when it suits you. Bank Vic get police because they've been helping them with their banking for nearly 50 years. To find out more, go to bankvic.com.au slash the crime couch. Bank Vic is the trading name of Police Financial Services Limited, ABN 33087651661. Tell me a little bit about Operation Flashdance, Keith. Yeah, defining moment of my life. Um, Operation Flashdance, we'd become a full-time group. I'd finished the, um, the CT instructor's course the month before. We were tasked with executing a search warrant or executing a yeah, search warrant on a, um, a house in Virginia um, targeting number one most wanted armed robber in Queensland, a vicious piece of work called Paul James Mullen. Um, it's a long story and it's probably best read but in essence, we, we raided the house. Mullen opened fire on my team um, from a very, very close range with a high-powered 223 Mini-14 Ruger rifle, 30-round magazine. Um, he shot um, and killed one of my team members. Peter, Peter was shot five times. He died two hours later in hospital. Um, my best friend, Steve, was with me, and he was shot um, just above the groin, so below where the vest was, and, and thank God he survived. Um, don't know how. I think he still carries around a millimetre or so from his spine. Um, Mullen kept firing. Two of us, uh, two of us went into the bedroom and killed him. My, that was the beginning of my what I know now. My descent into PTSD. Um, I had survivor guilt about Peter's death for, Lord gee, just on twenty five years, where I would literally every day think. I'd wake up and the first thought I'd have would be, if I'd done something differently, I could have done this, I would have done that, I should have done that. Um, and what I realise now is it was totally inappropriate. Well, again, inappropriate is probably not the right word, but but totally, um, totally unneeded, totally unwarranted, because it was nothing that could have changed. But it really... Um, but it's also extraordinarily human and natural. Yeah, thank you, it is, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a normal reaction and I've learnt... Um, only in the last couple of years through a very good counsellor, a normal reaction to an extraordinary event. And as she's told me, I witnessed the murder of a friend at close mm-hmm. range, so no wonder I was screwed up for quite a while. Um, and that, that really changed me. I'd Leading up to Flashdance, the squad had not shot anybody. Yeah, um, And we were very proud of the fact that we'd executed hundreds, literally hundreds of raids. Not one shot had been fired. Wow. Some, sometimes shots fired at us by the offenders, but never returned. In the next two years, um, we killed more people than we'd done previously because mm. the culture changed and we, we would no longer give people a second or third chance to, to put their weapons down. If they pointed a weapon at us, and this I'm talking about totally legally rules of engagement, or totally legal rules of engagement, we'd drop them. Um, and we, me personally, I, I know that I went through a period where I became almost homicidal. I was looking for every opportunity to have an armed confrontation to kill another crook. 
Um, and that was my need for revenge over the death of Pete. I realised, took me probably 18 months, or maybe I was in for another two years, but I, I realised I was turning that way. Um, and I knew that I needed to go because the everyone has a dark side, in my opinion. Everyone is capable of absolute violence. Thank God not many of us tap into it. I'd well and truly tapped into mine, and it was it was taking over who I was. Um, and it's a sobering thing to talk about. And in, in hindsight, I'm not proud of the way I was, but I was out for blood, you know. And I, I, I didn't take holidays. I was I didn't want to, did not want to miss out on any job that could have resulted in a lethal confrontation. And that's not who I am as a person. This was an, an extraordinarily, understandably very tough time for you in your life, Keith. Um, how close did you get to cracking? Yeah, I, I put a gun in my mouth. Um, I, I think it was about two months after Flashdance when I was at home. My, my then partner was out. She worked in the advertising area, the advertising world. And I, I um, put a gun in my mouth and thought about ending it all. And it wasn't... It's a very, very, very strange place to be. Um, it wasn't as if it was a conscious thought. I, I don't remember cocking the weapon. I do remember having it in my mouth and thinking, if I just squeeze the trigger, it all goes away. And what stopped me was that I had a flashback to a suicide I'd gone to years before. And I'd seen the results of a, um, a male who'd shot himself through the head. And I remember thinking, God, if she comes home, she being my partner, that would be a horrible thing for her to see. And in that, you know, that's when I went, Jesus Christ, what am I doing? And, uh, and took the weapon out, stripped it and hid it around the house. And um, I woke up the next morning and thought, I've got real problems here. But the problem was I didn't know who to talk to. We had no police doctor. We had no counsellors. We had um, nobody, really. It was just a completely unknown um, syndrome. And even in the 80s, I think PTSD was only really acknowledged maybe in the early 90s, you know, when they were starting to do some research. I think also it was a, a result of they called it something else, but it was often referred to when mem, uh, when officers came back uh, from Vietnam. Mm. So they talk about it then, and it was definitely in in relation to confronting situations, life and death situations, and often having to kill people in war. I think that's where it originally came from. Mm. Yeah, that's that's right. It was shell shock in World War One. It was combat fatigue yeah. in World War Two. Can't remember what the what the veterans from Vietnam were were told it was, but it's it have you as you've just said before, it's a normal reaction to an extraordinary event. And for me, you know, a lot of people have asked me what it felt like to, to shoot the offender. Nothing. Just it was just what it was. Mm. My pain came from losing one of my friends. Yeah. And uh, and because I was in charge of the assault team and in mm. charge of the planning, mm. you know, I took it really, really personally. Um, but it's what your training also indicated and pointed you towards, which is that you take ultimate responsibility. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's just about the, the amygdala. I've, I've gone into this and I can talk about this for hours, but, you know, the, the amygdala is... Um, that little thing that sits at the top of the, the um, spine or the, the, the spinal stem, and that, uh, that's fight or flight. And unfortunately, I was in a state of fight for years. You know? mm. So the classic symptoms of, and, and I talk about this to many, many people, because um, there are people I know listening to this who will be feeling the same things. You know, the short-term anger, the sense of isolation, the sense of despair and, uh, and, and total joylessness. Nothing made me happy. Well, nothing gave me joy. They're, they're two different things. Um, and going through all of that for a long, long time, finally coming out the other side, um, 
you know, and, and writing about it in, in my second book, Gun to the Head, and that's where the title came from, both a metaphorical and a, um, um, a legitimate gun to the head. Mm. And, uh, and for me to try to talk to people out there and say, hey, you're not by yourself and you're not crazy, mm. you're actually pretty bloody normal. You've just gone through a lot of things that other people haven't. Um, and for me, the lesson I've learned out of all this is to talk and talk to friends, talk to family, talk to somebody else, you know, share some lived experiences and, um, and really open up to it. And it will do you the absolute world of good. And I think not a lot of members understand, and particularly ex-members as well, how cumulative it is. So you can work for years and years and years and then one incident will tip you. And I think that's obviously what Operation Flashdance did for you because if you consider all your experience, lived in experience before then, it's not too surprising that you ended up with PTSD. Yeah, look, my, my career wasn't the norm either. I, I was constantly chasing everything, chasing the adventure, chasing the adrenaline, chasing the hard jobs. Um, and, you know, it's like a glass of water. It's just drop by drop by drop. And then one day another drop hits and the whole thing um, runs over the, the side. And, uh, and I, you know, I've, I've written, I think in the first book was about, you know, my analogy is it's like sediment bringing building up on a riverbank. It's one day it bursts the banks. And you don't have to be in a gunfight. You don't have to be in a life-threatening situation to have post-traumatic stress. You know, coppers see and see things that the vast majority of people never do, thank God. Um, and that's where our black humour comes from. And also, I think, you know, our sense of um, denial. You know, I'm stronger than that. It's not going to affect me. I've got no problem. And then, you know, a lot of people go home and cry by themselves. <laughs> You left the job, Keith, around about 37 years of age. Why did you leave so early? Uh, I was I was broken. I was emotionally broken. Um, and the catalyst for me was I, I'd, um, I'd been passed over for a, a senior sergeant promotion, and that's okay. And I went to get some feedback from this uh, particular superintendent. And he, um, he gave me all the usual palaver, you know, about my knowledge wasn't up to scratch. In fact, I'd top classes. That um, you know, I, I didn't have uh, an emergency management capability, and you know, I defused a couple of sieges and shot a couple of people, and so on, and and so we went through that little dance. And after about forty minutes, he said, "Look, it's like this: your publicity isn't helping you because I'd been decorated and I'd been all over the media." And uh, and I said, "Well, you know, it's not my choice." And he said, "Why? Well, and your attitude? You know, you're too friendly with people. You're too friendly with your troops. You need to be one of us." And started berating me about how I dealt and how I interacted with my team. And the fact that, you know, I was unfortunately subject to some media attention because of some things I'd done, good things. And, uh, and at the same time, I had a, uh, a friend from Victoria who many people would remember, Mark Wiley, who sadly passed away five years ago. Um, and he was uh, working for Coles Meyer. He flew to Brisbane. I'd, I'd met him before. And he was uh, headhunting me out to work in the corporate world. And and I remember quite vividly having dinner with him. He said, why would you want me, mate? I'm just a copper. And he said, well, I love the way you deal with people. I love the way you're prepared to take risks. I love the way that, you know, you're not, um, you're not isolating yourself from everybody. It, 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 essentially, all the things I was being told that wouldn't help me in the police force would help me outside. So heartbreaking decision, um, leaving a culture that I'd grown up in, um, you know, my friends and, and that, uh, that world, and I just took the leap. How difficult was it to transition into civilian life? Because 
you don't leave all that experience. You don't leave all those memories behind. What was it like to put on a suit, to put down the uh, the blue suit? Uh, do you do you think it was very difficult? Yeah, it was. It was. I, I remember handing in my firearm and my badge and thinking, are you sure you really want to do this? <laughs> and, uh, um, but Mark was great. Mark had been through it himself and uh, and he helped me with a lot of the transition. And, and also, you know, I'd moved... I'd left Brisbane, I'd moved to Melbourne. It was a new world, so it was a new paradigm for me. Right. And um, and I wanted to really make, um, I, I suppose, the best fist that I could of, of a world in corporate. And I was fortunate. They put me through an MBA, paid for it all. Um, so, you know, that gave me a new, completely new lease of life. Right. But having said that, Rochelle, I miss the job most days. Or more, I miss the people most days because you don't get that, you don't get that, um, that tribe anywhere else outside do you still um, bleed blue? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I do. I um, I go to Brisbane. Um, I see friends. You know, I've been invited into the current CERT, um, which is the equivalent of the SOG in, in Brisbane. I'm welcome with open arms. They take me in. They show me all the toys. They give me tours. And, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still a huge advocate. I know you're part of a, a, a group down here in Melbourne of a former detectives that catch up regularly. Now, how important is that for you to keep the networks up? Yeah, very. It's it's all about tribe, and um, you know, and one of the things that we see um, with my work with Police Veterans Victoria is that when people leave, they leave that tribe, and and we we are gregarious um, creatures. We we as humans, we need that support and that contact. And for me, it's yeah, it's very important just to get together and. It's, you know, similar values, um, similar lived experience, similar black senses of humour, um, all that stuff's pretty important. How would you sum up your police career now, Keith? Now I'm very, very proud of what I did. Um, I couldn't talk about it for a long time. Um, you know, as I say, I had the, the, the post-traumatic uh, stress environment. I had the survivor guilt. I loved what I did, but then I was embarrassed by some of it. Um, and it's funny, I've spoken to people, you mentioned my decorations before, I've spoken to people who are also decorated and we all get a bit embarrassed talking about it. And, uh, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, maybe I'm maturing, maybe, um, not according to a number of my friends, but, um, <laughs> I'm becoming more at peace with it. Yeah. And I look back on that career and I know now that I, I touched a lot of people's lives for the better. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm Pretty happy I contributed to the safety of people as best I could. You've written two excellent books, congratulations, by the way, um, which have received some really extraordinarily positive reviews. So what's next for you now, Keith? Uh, thank you for that. Um, I am still struggling to cope with the fact that apparently I'm an author. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd be published. I just I just wanted to write. Um, now third book I'm, I'm thinking about uh, a couple of concepts you know I'd, I'd really like to share other people's stories you know and and not just the dangerous stuff but certainly the the humor um the sense of of service the uh pathos the the the, the grief and uh and really you know just i guess little vignettes of people so that my fervent hope is that if someone has had not much to do with the cops reads my books um, or other people's books and go, wow, there's more to being a cop than writing traffic tickets and they're not all bastards um, and that they are human beings, then, you know, I will have achieved one of my objectives, I think. 
Thank you very much for sitting with me again today on The Crime Couch. It's been an absolute pleasure. And for me too, Rochelle. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Couch. 